Father, we, as we come before uh, your word, we pray that you would help us. Help us to behold truthful and beautiful things from your word. And help us to receive them as such. Give us this grace, we pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Kids, raise your hand if you have heard of the Chronicles of Narnia. That seems most of you, yeah. Um, You've probably maybe read the book, or maybe your parents have read the book to you, or you can put your hands down. Um, Or maybe you have, uh... (laughs) that was cute, Uh, or Maybe you've seen the movie, um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The author of the, the, the stories behind those movies or the author of those books is C.S. Lewis. And uh, your parents, many of them are familiar with C.S. Lewis. He was uh, famous in England uh, in the 50s. He was a, an atheist or agnostic philosopher uh, turned Christian. And he is a great and prolific writer. Uh, Church, one of the things that hung up C.S. Lewis about God and God as explained in the Bible is God's self-exaltation of himself. God's self-exaltation of himself. If you read through the scriptures, you see that God desires for his own name to be praised. Now, you and I, if we were to take on that attribute of God, we would be proud, arrogant, puffed up self-seeking, conceited, vain, right? But for God, that's what's called an incommunicable aspect of God. Uh, We're not meant to seek our own praise and glory. But for C.S. Lewis, he said it was like a vain woman who wants compliments. Probably could say a vain man too who's seeking compliments. But like a vain woman who wants compliments, that's what he used to think about when he read about God's self-exaltation. Until one day it finally clicked how God's own self-exaltation makes sense and actually contributes to our own joy. This is what he says about God desiring praise for himself. The most obvious fact about praise whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliments, approval, or the giving of honor. I'd never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards to the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. 
The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. I was thinking about that statement, and I remember the one of the more joyful times of my life is when uh, I asked Katie to marry me. She said yes, and we went through the phone list of people to call, and we called a couple people, and we knew this one friend, dear friend of Katie's, who liked me, but thought that maybe we were moving things a little too quickly. We had only lived beside each other for a few months because uh, Katie's from Minnesota. I live in North Carolina. And part of the agreement for her dad was that we should live in the same city for a little bit before we got married. So we shrunk that to just three months. Uh, but this friend didn't think that was long enough. And so I knew, and Katie knew when we called her, we wouldn't know what she, what she would say. Everyone else would say, oh my goodness, congratulations. And this friend said, oh, when did it happen? <laughs> Not exactly joy consummated. That's because from her perspective, as a faithful friend to Katie, she thought that maybe it was a little too fast, and therefore her joy did not overflow into congratulations like everyone else's did. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying here, is that the culmination of, of, of joy is praise. And that's what we see in our text here in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Go ahead and turn there, and then we will read it together, or I'll read it, and you'll follow along silently. Um, Someone shout out the page number in the Pew Bible for me, if you don't mind. Page 976, 976 in your Pew Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In the beloved. Amen. Church, knowing the grace of God in Christ will culminate in exuberant praise. Knowing the grace of God in Christ will culminate in exuberant praise. Maybe this morning you think that God has been stingy towards you, that God is withholding you from you something that you need or want. Maybe you think he's withholding these things and because of that, you can't enjoy life as you think you should or you can't enjoy even him as you should. Or maybe you think that your happiness is dependent upon God doing something more than he's already done for you in Christ. Ephesians 1, 3 to 6 is teaching us that our gracious God is praiseworthy for his gracious dealings with us. Our gracious God is praiseworthy for his gracious dealings with us. Uh, We have three points for our sermon, and they pretty much go right through the text. Point number one, blessed be God for blessing us in Christ. Blessed be God for blessing us in Christ. Beginning in verse 3 all the way down to verse 14 is one long sentence in the Greek. 
to make it make sense in English that's been divided up into various sentences. But just so you know, this is one large thought, one big sentence in the original language. And look at the beginning of verse 3 where all of this starts. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now go down to verse 14. To the praise of his glory. So bless God the Father, and then all that's in between is sandwich. And at the end of 14, you have to the praise of his glory. Go back up to verse 3. This all starts with blessing the Father. And then at verse 7, it moves to the work of the Son and the praise of the Son, and more specifically. And in verses 13 and 14, we see the work of the Holy Spirit. This is a great place to go to when uh, those kind Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door. And instead of maybe going to John 1, which I think a lot of us are used to going to, and they're ready for that, aren't they? They're ready for you to go to John 1. Maybe go to Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 to show that God is 3 and 1 and 1 and 3 and that Jesus really is God. That's what Paul is doing here. He's doing it in a much more beautiful way than just saying God is three and one, one is three. He's showing us how that is true. So verse three. Verse one, Paul says that we already call God his father. And then in verse three, he says, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's already expressed this idea, but now he's getting a little bit more specific and saying that Jesus is the Son of God, and Father is specifically the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because all the spiritual blessings which, is, which he is about to explain are only possible now for us because God has become our Father. The only possibility that we have these spiritual blessings, indeed the only possibility that we can bless God, is because God has become our Father through Jesus. And Jesus is the holy and blameless son that you and I are not. Jesus is the blessed seed of Abraham to bless the nations. And because of Jesus, in him, he has granted us complete spiritual blessing. Paul's making this very clear in verse 3. There is nothing incomplete about this spiritual blessing here. It is complete. It is full. It is a blessing that lacks nothing. God has richly blessed you, dear Ephesian church. That's what he is saying. And notice this is in the, the past tense. He's done this already. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Uh, flip on over to chapter 2, verse 6. You see the same idea of spiritual realities that have already happened. In 2.6, he says that God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul's trying to communicate to us right now, dear church, these spiritual realities have happened. You have been seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Go back to, to, verse one, or to chapter 1, verse 3. I asked in the beginning, maybe you think God's been stingy with you. The apostle's trying to make it clear that God has not been stingy with you. He says every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. So, so what are these spiritual blessings? 
Well, they are the spiritual blessings because they've been, they are spiritual blessings because they've been given to us by the Holy Spirit. Spiritual here means that which pertains or is belonging to the Spirit of God. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit in the Gospels in John the Spirit of truth. He also calls him a helper. And that for the Christian, Jesus says he will dwell with you and that he will dwell in you. He testifies about Jesus. And the Spirit testifies Jesus about Jesus with the end goal of glorifying Jesus. This is the Spirit's primary work, to make much of Jesus Christ. And so for those who are in Christ, we are now sealed in the Holy Spirit. And therefore, all of the spiritual blessings in Christ are ours. You can go down. We'll we'll get there in a few weeks. Verses 13 and 14 explain this more. 14 says that he is a guarantee of our inheritance. That's what Paul's saying, that the spiritual blessings are mediated by the Holy Spirit, and they are, are all ours because of Christ. We're not coming up short from God blessing us. We're not coming up short from God blessing us. This is God's plan to bless an undeserving people for his namesake. God has been doing this throughout all of history. God called Abraham out of a pagan nation to mark him off as holy and as separate from the rest of the nations. God called Israel out of Egypt. God raised Christ out of the grave, and now God, in Christ, we are now raised with him spiritually and have obtained every spiritual blessing. Church, God has not been stingy with you. He's given you all that pertains to life and godliness and then more. He's given you holiness, redemption, forgiveness, adoption, the illumination of the scriptures, the knowledge of the mystery of Christ. He's caused you to see and taste the goodness of God. We do not have a stingy God. We have a God who loves to bless his children. So we've been given every spiritual blessing and then in the heavenly places, or maybe you could say in the heavenly realms. Uh, Ephesians 2, 6-7 carries this idea of heavenly places. You see this language a lot in Ephesians, and I'm not going to get into it as much because it's going to keep coming up and we'll dive into it more then. But in 2, 6 and 7, we've already said this, but he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The idea here is that the Father's gracious dealings with us have taken in places, taken, taken part in places, yes, in this physical world, but more importantly, more and fundamentally in the spiritual realms. Paul's saying here that they have been secured and locked away. They cannot be stolen. They are heavenly realities, not just earthly realities. This is all in Christ. Uh, Romans 8 talks more about this, that now that we are in Christ, God is working all things for us, all things for our good. We are secure in Jesus and in his work. Church, God has not withheld anything from you. 
if he's blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Christ, how can we stand before such a gracious God and say, God, I can't believe you haven't given me X, Y, or Z. He's given you every spiritual blessing in Christ. So often our thinking is like Eve in the garden. In the midst of thousands and thousands of fruit trees, we can have our pick, every kind of fruit tree, and yet we're focused on that one tree that God forbids. God has said, do not eat from that tree. Just like that tree leads to curse, friends, so does anything that God forbids. And for the Christian who is in Christ, God has a wise plan for you beyond what you can see. You see, there is something different between us and between Adam and Eve. We might even take bites from the forbidden tree, but unlike Adam and Eve, we are not cursed because of it. Because Christ has taken on that curse. He has taken on the wrath of God. And that's why we are in him. And that's why Paul is saying it's so, it's so important for a church that needs encouragement to know that God has not been stingy with you. No matter the persecution that comes your way, no matter the hardships, no matter what you desire so deeply, so badly that he hasn't given you. God has given you every spiritual blessing in Christ. Well, secondly, we see in verses 4 and 5 that we are to bless, the God, bless God for graciously choosing us. Bless God for graciously choosing us. Look at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. Now what he's doing so everything that he says is every spiritual blessing. But now he's going to go through some of those spiritual blessings all the way through verse 14. And the first one he chooses is to say that God has chosen us. He chose us before, him, before the foundation of the world. You can look at 1 Corinthians 2, 2 Timothy 1 for the same idea, the same concept. And it's always meant to give encouragement and endurance to those who are chosen by God. What this means very plainly is that God had a plan to deal with sin and sinners from before the foundation of the world. He was choosing people to be in his holy begotten son. It's not that God saw that we would make a decision and then choose him. That's not how it's written. That's not how it's talked about in 2 Timothy 1 or 1 Corinthians 2. That's not the picture of our big, powerful, omniscient God that we get in the scriptures. God's foreknowledge and him choosing us isn't because we came to the knowledge that we would choose him. It very plainly says here that God chooses us, that this plan extends all the way back. So before God made a fish, a tiger, before God made leaves and trees and grass and water and the moon, before he made the planet Earth, before he made the galaxies, God had a plan, and he planned that he would choose some people to be under his loving care. The Father has been gracious 
to us in choosing us. He did not have to. He was under no pressure to do it at all. He wasn't merely lonely and he said, I want to make some people and choose them for myself. It's very clear that God chooses people from before the foundations of the world. And this is what this doctrine is meant to do to a church living in a world that is increasingly antagonistic and hostile towards those who follow Christ. That's the Ephesian world, and friends, that's our world. And that's the world, um, certainly, of many of the countries that the Ephesian students are going to. It's used to set you at ease and to give you confidence in your place in Christ. So when you think about God choosing you, think about how often you try to perform for people in your life. Think about how often you try to make your resume look so good that people can't turn it away. Think about the experience you had with your earthly father. Maybe you had an earthly father that was absent, not that involved in your life. Maybe he just went. Maybe you never got to know him. Our Father is not like that. Our Father knew you before the foundations of the world. He knew you before your mom knew you. He knew you before your earthly dad knew you. He knew you before he formed this world. God knew you and he chose you in his son. He's not absent. He engages you. He he knows the deepest desires of your hearts. He knows your sin struggles. He knows your fears. He engages you in those areas. Maybe some of you had a father who was authoritative. Sorry, overly authoritative. Maybe you had a father that was domineering. Friends, God's not like that either. He graciously chooses us, and then he graciously gives us all the blessings in Christ Jesus, always constantly working for our good, no matter what comes our way. He is active in our lives, and he works in our lives. He's constantly at work for you, and he's not waiting for you to prove anything to him, but he loves you. And that's good news. It's good news for me to point my kids to this kind of father when I mess up, when I'm either passive or when I'm domineering. I can say to my girls and to my boys, look, I am going to do this again, and I am so sorry. I don't want to, but my sin nature runs deep. But I can't point you to a God who never treats you in a way that you shouldn't be treated. This is the kind of good father that Paul is encouraging us with church. Does that not give you encouragement to carry on? My father loves me. How long does he love me? From before the foundations of the world. My friends, you can only be chosen by him if you are in Christ. So what this means is that if someone doesn't hear about Christ, they can't be chosen in him. That's why Paul is so strategically partnering with churches in order to get the word of Christ to others, so that they might be found in him. 
maybe you're wondering, whoa, 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 whoa. What's going on here? Is that incongruous? Does that, does that make any sense? It does make sense, friends. It makes complete sense to God. And if it doesn't make sense to us, then we are either not reading the scriptures rightly or there's something that has fallen short in us. One of my heroes of the faith is a man named John Payton or John Patton. He was, um, if you've been out of church for a while, you've heard a lot about Patton. Uh, he was a missionary from Scotland to the New Hebrides or Vanuatu. And he had a deep desire to bring gospel light to those who had no access to it. He went through insurmountable, unbelievable suffering. He had 10 children, six, uh, four of whom who died on the island that he was ministering. His first wife gave birth to uh, their son, and his wife died about a month later, and then his son died about two weeks later after landing on the island together. At one point, John Patton had worked diligently to raise money for a ship to further their missionary efforts. The ship was called the Dayspring. So after months and months of fundraising in Australia and in Scotland, the ship hit a rock and it sunk. And this man, John Patton, with a vigorous trust in God's sovereign grace, responds like this in his autobiography. Whatever trials have befallen me in my earthly pilgrimage, I have never had the trial of doubting that perhaps, after all, Jesus had made some mistake. No! My blessed Lord Jesus makes no mistakes. When we see all his meaning, we shall then understand what now we can only trustfully believe that all is well. Best for us, best for the cause most dear to us, best for the good of others and the glory of God. There's a man who believed that God is sovereignly working all things. And there's a man who believed that God sovereignly works and saves people as they hear and respond to the gospel. Giving his whole life, giving up a faithful, robust, fruitful ministry in Scotland and going and suffering for the cause of Christ because that's how people are sovereignly, that is the means by which people are saved. Friends, this choosing has a further purpose given here. He chose us that we might be holy and blameless as the text says. We must be holy and blameless before him. So the, the aim of this choosing, the aim of the election is that we would be holy and blameless. We've seen the word, hol the word holy already in verse 1, as we're called saints in verse 1. We're to be separate, consecrated unto Jesus Christ. We are to be like a Jesus Christ nation, the nation of Jesus Christ, the people of Jesus Christ. And then the Christian is to be holy in that they are reflecting the character of God in a godless world. So in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4, the people have forsaken the Lord and even despised the Holy One of Israel. God says that the people he made, his people, are utterly estranged. They are cut off from God, and now God, and now God is choosing a people who will be set apart, wholly consecrated to him, and he's doing this all by his grace. You see, God's getting the credit, and God's doing the action here. Those who were not a people will become a people. Here's the idea that a people are to, be, are, are to be set apart for God. And then we see after holy the word blameless. The second aim of divine election is blamelessness. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, the altar had to be un, 
reserved for unblemished animals, that is, blameless animals, to be a sin offering of atonement. And now in the new covenant, the sacrificial system is gone because the holy, blameless, unblemished, spotless Lamb of God was sacrificed as a sin offering of atonement once for all. Those chosen before the foundation of the world are now holy and blameless, and they offer lives of living sacrifice because of that one great sacrifice of Jesus. This is all the gracious work of God. Christ is the unblemished sacrificial lamb of God. And now in Christ, we have become his holy and blameless people. Church, you and I deserve judgment from God. But because of divine grace, because of his interceding, he changes us from unholy to holy, from culpable to blameless. And then you see in verse 5, the same idea carried through. Verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, in your reading this, you could be asking, is this just redundant? Is he just saying the same thing he's already said? Because he said he's chosen before the foundation of the world. Now, is he just saying we're predestined? This is just the same thing? Yeah, he chose us. But more specifically, he's saying he predestined us. It's not redundancy, but a further explanation of the spiritual blessings of divine election. He is now showing us a second purpose of his sovereign electing grace, and that is adoption. Through the work of God's Son, many would be adopted as sons. Through the work of God's only begotten Son, many would be adopted as sons. This is their destination from before they were conceived in the womb. Formerly, we were sons of disobedience and children of wrath. Formerly, we were under, we were sons of the father of lies. And Ephesians 2 says this, well, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So, for a discouraged church, this is what Paul wants them to know first and foremost. This is how he opens his letter. Before the foundations of the world, you were chosen by the Father in Christ. And now you have been adopted as a son or daughter of God. And this is according to God's pleasure and his purpose and his will. God delights in this act. And God is resolved to carry out his will in having worshipers. And he's doing that through taking sons of wrath and disobedience and making them sons of God through his beloved son. He's adopting them as his own children through his beloved son. This is a means by which God's good will is carried out. And God takes great delight in graciously saving people. God loves doing that. This is his will. He takes pleasure in this. Your Bible, if you have the ESV, says his purpose. You could also read pleasure there. Now, this doesn't seem fair, does it? This doesn't seem fair. 
why would God adopt any of us? Why would God do any of us? If I'm a son of wrath, if I'm a son of disobedience, if I am a hater of God, if I love my sin and I hate all the ways of God, how is it fair that God would look upon any of us and say, I want to adopt them as my son? You see, we have loved the ways of the world. We have lived in the passions of our flesh. We are mockers of God. We have reviled God. I remember being a teenager and blaming God for every single problem I had. I would curse God. That's how I prayed. I would go to him and I would curse him for everything that I thought was unfair in my life. Friends, it is fair to say that I hated God. It is right and fair to say that you, before you were in Christ, hated God. And so what doesn't seem fair about this passage is that God would do anything for us at all. That's what comes across here and seems unjust. For me, God, what did I do? God says you did nothing. I chose you before the foundations of the world that you might be holy and blameless in my son. And this is encouraging. Remember two weeks ago when I preached, I said the aim of this letter is to encourage weary saints to carry on in a world that is antagonistic towards Christ. This is God's purpose for us, that we would know that we have the grace to carry on because before the foundations of the world, God has chosen us and given us that grace. And friends, if you don't believe that God chose you, and you don't believe that he's working all things together for your good and for your glory, you have a, doesn't mean you're not in Christ per se, depends on what you mean by chose, but you have a really hard, long, hard, and arduous walk ahead of you. If you can't submit to the good doctrine of divine saving grace and divine grace that carries you on through this world, your walk will be long, hard, and unnecessarily arduous. You won't look at trials in their face and see them as means to sanctify you. You will begrudge them. You will be like a man who is watching the stock market to see if it's a good or bad, and your joy will ebb and flow increasingly up and down every hour. As Karl Barth said, in light of this doctrine, he said, it is a stronghold in times of temptations and trials. If you have further questions about that, please come talk to me. Many of the church members here who found so much delight and joy in Ephesians 3, uh, 1, 3, 4, and 5. Now, lastly, our last point is application. Bless the God of grace. Bless the God of grace. Verse 6 why is he doing all this? What is God's point in all of this? Verse 6 tells us why he's doing it. We're getting the curtain pulled back to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The fullest understanding of his grace, that's what he's getting across here, leads to the fullest culmination of our joy, which is praise. 
So one point and our only point of application here, given in verse 6, is that his foreordained plans are all working together to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, in his most son. So therefore, praise God. The idea of being blessed in the beloved has already been mentioned here, and Paul is mentioning again. Yet he's not referred to him as the beloved until now. This shows that God has this, the Father has this intimate relationship with his Son. Unlike any relationship you and I can imagine. And the Father calls him his beloved Son. That's what he declares when Jesus is baptized. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. That's what is said on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son within whom I am well pleased. God's well pleased with the beloved son because the beloved son is holy and blameless. He's not well pleased with children of wrath. But if the son died for you and his blood was shed for you and your sins are cleansed, you are now a son and daughter of God. And he looks at you, son and daughter of God, and he says, I am well pleased. My son has shed his blood for them. He's well pleased in his son, and that's good news. And now you are adopted as a son or a daughter of God. Not because of your workings, but because of the workings of his beloved son. And so here we see that the goal of all this God is doing, the goal of all this is his glory. And people are most joyful, and God is most glorified when people ascribe praise to him. This is God's final and ultimate goal for us. This is God's final and ultimate goal for him. That he might be glorified through his saving grace of his son. Through myriads and myriads of people from different tongues, tribes, and nations. So for our final goal, friends, we make much of him by praising him among the peoples. God, be gracious to us and bless us. Cause your face to shine upon us, that your ways may be known on the earth, your salvation among all peoples. We praise God privately and publicly for his saving grace. And John Piper put this idea like this, that God's final goal is the fullest display and vindication and communication of his glory for the everlasting enjoyment of his redeemed people. Friends, that is good news for the weary Christian. Our understanding of his grace should break forth in praise. His praise is the consummation of our joy. Our joy is incomplete until we say, God, we bless you, we praise you, because I was a son and child of wrath, and now I am in the beloved. Praise you, God, for your grace. I did not deserve that. So let me just speak to the fusion students. You are going overseas to a people that have little to no access to this news. They can't praise God for his grace because they've never heard of this glorious grace. So friend, first of all, let it well up inside of you deeply. Let what you once were and now are in Christ overflow with joy. And have this confidence. You are going over there for their joy. 
You want to see people happy in Christ. Even if you plant a gospel seed, even if it grows, even if a brother named Muhammad, a brother named Gokhan, a brother named Selatin, a sister named Fatma, even if they become Christians, they become baptized, their family finds their Bible, and they are ostracized or even killed for their newfound faith, have this confidence that you are doing this because you are loving them unlike they've been loved before. You are extending the gracious gift of the saving grace of God. Have that confidence that even when people's lives get mega hard because they respond positively to the gospel, because their father finds a Bible under their pillow, you are doing them ultimate good because you are working for their eternal joy, even though in this life it often comes with persecution. You are laboring in love for their joy to the ultimate praise of God's glorious grace. Church, have this confidence this week. God will keep you throughout this life because if he chose you from before the foundations of the world, he cannot lose you. You are tethered to him. He has sealed you in his Holy Spirit. He has looked upon you and he says, I desire glory from that person. I'm going to save them. I'm going to give them my son. And a God who extends grace to unworthy sinners like you and me, the only proper response is praise. Let's pray. Our Father, we have every confidence that you have called us, you have redeemed us, you've sanctified us, and we are now yours completely, that Jesus is our great high priest interceding for us even now. And all those that he called, he will not lose. So thank you, O oh Lord, for calling us. Lord, we pray for those who don't know you. Oh, Father, we pray that even now, this hour, they would respond in faith and repentance. We pray that they would see your gracious working. We pray that they would know that today is a day of salvation. Oh, Lord, glorify yourself through saving sinners even today. For your glory, for their joy, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.